Good afternoon. Well, just having read chapter 14, aren't you glad that Sam led us so well in prayer in asking God to bless me and all of us as we listen to his word? Because this is a packed chapter and it's one that, at least one of the paragraphs, is a bit challenging for us, isn't it? And so let's have a look at what it says. I want to start off by asking you what you would do if you were sitting in church on the day that I'm about to describe. I was the pastor of a small church of about 40 people, 40 people that you'd call misfits. They really didn't fit in very well into normal congregations. And one day, a man came in and joined us, somebody who we didn't know. Uh, He didn't talk to me before church. In fact, he didn't talk to anyone else before church either. But as we started praying, uh, he stood up and he said, I have a word from God. The person who was leading in prayer continued uh, to pray. And then when, when they sat down, the person stood up again and said, God has sent me with a message to you all. What are you going to do in that sort of situation? Well, at that point, one of our wise church leaders took the men outside and he said, I would love to hear this word. So he took him out and the man explained it to him. We continued church inside. Is that the right thing to have done, though? Should we have let this man tell this word that he felt so compelled to have to share with the church? In fact, how do you work out what the right thing to do is? How do you work out what the right thing to do in that situation that we were facing was and in our meetings here? Do we at Wild Street, so we just keep running Wild Street at five the same way as we always do or just do it the way the leader says? Well, as we've been exploring this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians over the last few weeks, we've seen that how you act is to be made for the good of the body. Every one of us has to act in a way that enables the body to be benefited. Now, as I say that, all good organisations and companies do that. It's not about the individual, it's about the group and the group performance. But Paul takes us further in chapters 12, 13 and 14. You act for the good of the body but also with a willingness to give up things that are of immediate benefit to you, especially those things that make you or other people think of you as being special, being willing to give up those things that make you shine is what you have to do. And that willingness to not want to show how good you are is only possible because of the work of God in you. So when you see yourself and when you see other people being eager to do that, that is not to show off, not to do the things in front of everybody else, but to go and visit when no one else knows, to make the phone call and pray and love and care for people when no one else knows, knows what's going on. Thank God for that, because that is the work of God. And it's also only possible because you and the church are already special. You don't need to make yourself feel special. You don't need to ensure that other people see you as special because you, God's own son, died for you. How much more special can you be than that, than the one who spoke creation into existence, giving his life for you? 
And the church, this church, any church, is described as the apple of God's eye, the one who he loves. And so there is no need to show off personally. There is no need for our church to demonstrate how superior it is because we are both as deeply loved and as special as you can be. And I've got to say, remember that when you feel cheated by not being able to use the gifts that you have or when you're using your gifts for the common good that really are uncomfortable, they cost you or when you are challenged, as we will be tonight, by what Paul is about to say. And so in this chapter that was just read to us, chapter 14, the Apostle Paul gives us examples of what doing good, of what love looked like for the Corinthians. And he does it by considering two real things that are going on for them, two real things that get in the way of building the body up. So these two things are very significant in their situation. They are, first of all, the place of speaking in tongues and comparing that to the importance of prophecy. And secondly, the order, orderliness in the way that church is conducted. And I have to say that even though these two issues might not be of the greatest importance to you, or else they, so you don't care too much about them, or else they are really significant to you, so you don't think there's any need to consider any other options, we need to listen and to learn why Paul says what he says so that in our situations, whatever we're facing here at Wild Street, we'll be able to work out what we should do because that is what's going to help us. It's like when one of my children was young, uh, what happened was I saw them holding a fork and I saw the intent was to put that fork into a power socket. So I could see what was about to occur and I yelled out, don't put that fork into that PowerPoint. And it was so loud that they jumped back because my intent was to stop her putting that specific fork into that particular PowerPoint because it was necessary to act really quickly. But what I was hoping and what I was really saying, and you'll be pleased to know it did happen, it, uh, they, uh, she didn't put a, the fork in the PowerPoint, um, but you see, what I was really saying was, don't put anything dangerous into any PowerPoint. You see, the specific thing that I was talking about was to help her not to electrocute herself, but also to help her for the rest of her life. And so hearing this advice from the Apostle tonight, from his command here, is to help us today to see what we should do when strange things happen in church. What do you do when somebody stands up and says, God has sent me with a message for all of you? or anything else that goes on. Now, as we step back from these two issues, you can see the chapter is broken into two parts like that, but as we step back from the two issues that Paul speaks about, the common thread, and in fact, I think the key verse of this chapter is verse 26. This is how we to think about anything. Let all things be done for building up. And from that, all things being done for building up, I think there are three summary rules that shape the way we should function in church. The first one, do everything for the common and therefore not for the personal good. You've actually got to have on view the congregation and the love of other people. Secondly, good comes from having your mind transformed by the word of God. What is the most important thing that can happen to you? you hearing the word of God and being urged to live under it. And thirdly, 
maintaining the order that God has established because it is good. And so let's have a look, and this is going to take a fair bit of time, let's have a look at the two situations in Corinth that Paul's identified as the problems for the Corinthians, problems that got in the way of the common good. First of all, tongues and prophecy, and then the ordering in the meeting. So firstly, tongues and prophecy. Some of you will have never heard of tongues before, and some of you won't know what prophecy in church looked like or sounded like, and so you might have no interest in this chapter at all. But for some of us here, we're fascinated by tongues. Some of us will have come from churches where tongue speaking was common and wish that we did it here. And if that's you, you can quote verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues, or verse 18, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And some of you here will be anti-tongues. You'll say, oh, they were for the first century, that was for the earliest church, but now tongues aren't needed. And there are others of us who are just scratching our head, just puzzled by the whole topic. But God has preserved this chapter for our benefit. So what we need to do is recognise the biases that we've come to this chapter with and be willing to change as God reveals his mind to us. So to tongues and prophecy. What are they? Prophecy? Well, we know what Old Testament prophets did, but what's prophecy in the first century church? And tongues? Well, what are they? Well, firstly, to tongues. There's not much in the New Testament about tongues. In fact, that the New Testament doesn't say much about tongues tells you something very important, and that is that tongues aren't the most important thing. They were so, so important for the Corinthians, but they're not so important in the plans of God. The place where you read about tongues is here in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, what happens is the message of Jesus starts in Jerusalem where he died, rose again and ascended to heaven. Uh, It starts there in Jerusalem and as the message of Jesus moves out from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, as people move from death to life in Jesus, the church was formed and the church was formed from people who previously worshipped dumb idols to now serve the living and true God. And there are three accounts of tongues in the book of Acts. Firstly, in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost, the first day, in fact, of the church. And there on that day, people were gathered from so many places, so many different backgrounds and so many different languages. And there on that day, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended on them. And they heard a sound like a rushing wind. And then tongues of fire appeared and rested on each of them. How amazing is that? But then what is even more amazing is that every person heard what was being said in their own languages. You see, tongues on the day of Pentecost weren't some special heavenly language But the miracle was that people were able to hear and understand what others were saying. No matter what language the others were speaking in, they heard it in their own language. It's probably a little bit like me standing here speaking in English. And those of you that don't understand English but only understand Chinese are hearing me speak in Chinese. Or those of you that come from Slovenia who don't understand English are hearing what I'm saying being in Slovenian. That's Acts chapter 2. The next is in Acts chapter 10. 
There, the message of Jesus for the first time moves beyond the Jews to a man named Cornelius, and he's the first non-Jewish Christian. And as Cornelius heard the message and believed the message of Jesus, the group that were with him spoke in tongues. We're not told if the tongues there is understanding other human language or if it's the language of heaven, but accompanying that movement, which moves first of all from the Jews and then to all nations, it was accompanied by the speaking in tongues. And finally then, in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul comes across a group of disciples of John the Baptist. These are people that had trusted the Old Testament and put their trust in the God of the Old Testament, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know that all of the Old Testament promises were fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul sees these people and he then tells them that John was just the warm-up act to point to Jesus. And as he explains that, they turn and put their trust in Jesus so they move from being Old Testament disciples to New Testament disciples who have their trust in Jesus. And as they do that, they too speak in tongues. And there are many, many other people in the book of Acts who become Christians, but it's only these three that are recorded as being accompanied by tongues. So what can we say as we read the book of Acts about tongues? We're not sure exactly what tongues refers to. Secondly, tongues accompanied the expansion of the message of Jesus that went into new areas. But we also know that as the gospel expanded as well, they weren't always accompanied by tongues. And so therefore tongues are not necessary for or part of people becoming followers of Jesus. But in Corinth, we know that many of them spoke in tongues. And I think these tongues were probably non-human languages, that is the language of angels. But the Corinthians thought that tongues were a sign of how spiritual they were, that they lacked nothing. There's nothing else that needed to be given to them because, look, we speak in the language of angels. We are so special. We are so close to God. You can't get closer to God than what we are. That's what they thought tongues were. And prophecy. Well, we know what Old Testament prophecy was. It was people chosen by God, empowered by God, to speak the very words of God. Sometimes that prophecy involved foretelling the future that God had revealed to them, but not always. But Old Testament prophecy was always calling the people back to remember God who had made himself known to them and how to live that out in the situation that they were in. And the Old Testament prophets spoke the word of the Lord. And that's not what the New Testament prophets did. The New Testament equivalent, if you like, of Old Testament prophets is the Bible. The Old Testament prophets, this is what God says. In the Bible, the New Testament, what we find is, this is what God says. But New Testament prophecy always called people back to the God who revealed himself in the Bible and applied that Bible to their situation. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, what these prophets said might or might not have been right. So it needed to be tested it needed to be tested against God's written word, unlike the Old Testament prophets. And it could be accepted or it might be rejected, depending on whether it was true or not. 
And so given that the, new, the Corinthian church had both tongues and prophecy, what are the benefits of each? Benefits of tongues. They are of benefit to the one who speaks in tongues. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. I can see how that works. You feel especially close to God, have a close relationship with God, and so it strengthens your faith. But the second benefit, it's not so much a benefit, it really is an outcome, but the second effect of tongues is something that you would never think of. And so because we would never think of it, it's a challenge to us, brothers and sisters, because some people think that tongues are a means by which people who aren't Christians see the presence of the spiritual, of the supernatural, and so are drawn to God. So somebody walks in here to Wild Street and they hear us all speaking in tongues and they think, oh, this is something which is supernatural. I want in with it. But the benefit of tongues... Or the effect of tongues, Paul said, is the exact opposite of that. In verses 20 to 23, you can ask questions about this later on if you wish, but in verses 20 to 23, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 28. And in Isaiah 28, the nation of Israel, God's people, have refused to listen to God, and so God judges them by having them overrun and defeated by the vicious nation of Assyria. And so what happened is, as the Jewish people walked down their streets, they didn't hear the tongue of their beloved Jewish language, but the tongue of the Assyrian language. And when they heard that tongue, they knew that they had been defeated, that they were overrun, and that they were judged by God. It would be like walking down the streets of Maroubra and hearing not English or the language that you speak, but say... Icelandic everywhere. If you heard that down at Pacific Square, everywhere you turned, every voice you heard, you knew that Iceland had defeated you and that God had come in judgment on this nation. And so the person who isn't yet a Christian, who hears tongues, comes into our meeting because they want to see what Christianity is about. And all they hear is something that makes no sense to them. They're unable to draw near to God. And so under the judgment of God. In prophecy. What are the benefits of prophecy? Verse 3. If you prophesy, you speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Isn't that lovely? building them up, encouraging them to keep going and in times of difficulty being able to help them through it. Verse 4, prophecy builds up the church. Verses 24 and 25, if an unbeliever or an outsider comes in, he'll be convicted by all and the secrets of their heart will be disclosed and so falling on their face they'll worship God and declare that God is truly amongst you. Unlike the person who comes in and hears tongue and says, hears tongues and it's the judgment, as they come in and they hear, Jesus died for you. I've seen this happen. The hearts are exposed and people say, I need to turn to him. So prophecy is reminding others of the words of God. And God takes our words, my words, your words, as they mirror his words and plants them in people so they might be built to maturity 
or encouraged to keep going or consoled and comforted in hard times. And as an individual part of the body grows, so the whole church grows and is built up. And so as we chat and speak the words of God, that's what prophecy is, people will meet God and be saved. How powerful and special and wonderful is that? What gift could you want more than that? That just speaking transforms people to eternity. That's prophecy and we can all do it. Just using your mouth can bring such great change. Eternity changing. It's almost too grand to imagine. So given that, tongues and prophecy, it's not surprising that when Paul compares prophecy with tongues, that the, the tongues that the Corinthians are so proud of, tongues come a very distant last because the way of love, the more excellent way that we looked at last week, is not about you, but about benefiting others. So here's some of the comparisons. Verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Or in verse 9, if with your tongue you utter speech that isn't intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? You'll just be speaking into the air. Twice in my life, I've lived across the road from an army barracks. And each time I moved in, the next Monday, I was met by bugle practice. I thought someone was having a joke with me. Now, in a war... The bugle is fantastic. It's a warning. It tells everybody to get up and be ready for battle. Everybody knows the value and the sound of it. They know what to do when they hear the bugle. But I tell you, on Monday night, it just led me to scream because it didn't mean anything. You see, you can't... So it is with tongues. If you can't understand what is being said, there is no point opening your mouth. Or in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind's unfruitful. And your mind matters. Emotions, as great as they are, will not permanently change you. But it's the content of what God has done that comes in words. And his promises of what he will yet do for us that comes in words that will transform you. And so Paul's con conclusion is there in verse 19. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Get that comparison? 2,000 to one. Five words to 10,000 words. Now, I have here in my hand a $5 note. It's in pretty good condition. It's got a bit of a crease, but it's in pretty good condition. And you can have this just for $10,000. Who wants it? It's insane, isn't it? You wouldn't pay me $10,000 for this $5 note. But that's the conclusion that Paul wants us to come to. Five words intelligible, better than three hours of tongues. Jesus died to save you. He's better than three hours of tongues. And so, tongue, so prophecy is so much more important than tongues. But there's a bit more to say. If tongues are interpreted, then they are as valuable as prophecy. 
precisely because they then become intelligible. And so prophecy is equal to tongues plus interpretation. And so, so valuable is prophecy, so valuable are are these gifts of teaching the word of God to build up. And Paul has poured such cold water on tongues that he has to conclude in verse 39, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, but don't forbid speaking in tongues. That's the first issue, tongues and prophecy. The second issue in Corinth is about order in the church. And you'll be pleased to know this is much shorter. I think this is the one that challenges us the most because it raises the role of men and women, or I think a better translation because it's the same word in the Greek, husbands and wives. In Corinth, the church gatherings must have been disorderly and out of control. It seems like person after person after person after person stood up and said things. There was no control over who said what and when it was said. And I can imagine that happening as everybody wanted to show how spiritual they were by using their tongue or some other sort of gifts. And when that happens in church, you can imagine how frustrating it must have been with all of that disorder that was going on, not knowing what was going to happen next, not knowing how long the gathering was going to take. You get here at five o'clock and you don't get home till 2am in the morning because the next person's speaking in tongues. Very frustrating. But worse than frustrating, because the way that you function in church sets the way you function in life. I've seen it here, I've only been at Wild Street for two years, but I've seen it here at Wild Street. I can tell somebody who has grown up in Wild Street by the way you lead in prayer. Because what you hear from the front modelled becomes your own prayers. The sorts of language that we use in church becomes the language that you use outside church. I notice when I hear somebody say, you are blessed, I think you're a Christian. Because only Christians use the word blessed because you've got to have somebody who blesses you. And so what we do in church shapes the way we think in the rest of our lives. And disorder in church becomes the way your life is as well. It's a model of disorder in the way that we are to live our lives. And so hear what Paul says in verse 33. God is not a God of confusion or of disorder, but of peace. God is a God of order. The fact that we know what time the sun is going to get up each morning is because God is a God of order. And because order is good and right, God calls our churches to be ordered. That, by the way, is why Rod read that legal document about Kurt a little while ago. It's not just Kurt that they've got it for. It's for anyone who wants to be ordained as deacon in the Anglican church. It's because we are about order. And people who are deacons are actually involved in ordering the church and say, you don't want to just appoint anybody to it. You see, order is good because God is a God of order and him being a God of order is always good for us. And that means that our church meetings must be orderly because that honours the God of order. It's also best for our gatherings and also best for us because it models how we live the rest of our lives. And so Paul gives some rules about order. They are, firstly, if there are tongues, the tongues must be interpreted so the people might be built up. Verse 26 and verse 28. So if you haven't made sure that someone can interpret the tongue that you're about to utter, 
no matter how important you think your tongue is, you've got to remain silent. Secondly, two or at the most three tongues plus interpretation or words of prophecy are to be spoken and no more. Verse 29. That tells you something important because we think that our words of wisdom, that our words of knowledge are so crucial and important that they must be spoken to the congregation. But as valuable as prophecy is, when three people are spoken, you can't deliver yours. God will use a different means to grow his people and his church. After all, this is God's church and he will do things his way. Thirdly, when prophets speak, what they say, because they're not Old Testament prophets, what they say must be weighed to see if it's correct. Just that the fact that somebody says something doesn't mean it's right and it doesn't mean it's helpful. Verse 29. Because anyone can claim to have a word of prophecy, but that word could be wrong or it could be said at the wrong time. So what he said must be weighed up against the revealed word of God. And for us, we have it wonderfully kept for us in the Bible. And I hope you're doing that with me this evening as well. And I hope you do it every week for the preacher. Don't just accept what the preacher says because he stands here, but weigh it up with one another. Weigh it up by what the Bible says, not by it's what I want to hear or it's what I think, but has it, does it align with what God has revealed in his word? That is why the gifts of speaking are such value, because they remind us of what God has kindly told us. And the fourth thing about order, and I think this is the one that is most challenging for us, is women, and as I said, I think it's wives, Wives are to be silent in the weighing of prophecy. Instead of speaking and weighing the prophecy in church, they're to ask their husbands at home, verses 34 and 35. Now remember, as I say that, some of you have got your hackles up, haven't you? Remember, as I say that, women are not to be silent through the whole of the church gathering, Rod's going to be up and he's going to answer questions later on. But in chapter 11, the first half of the chapter from verses 2 to 16, women are to pray and encourage to prophesy in church. But it seems that here, in the matter of weighing prophecy, they are to be silent. And so you ask, why would that be the case? Well, remember back in chapter 11, Paul gave an order... Of responsibility to the roles that exist and you can see the order there on the slide God Christ man woman now with that thing on the screen behind you it feels shocking doesn't it as somehow this person is more important than that person it's not got to do with that it's got to do with responsibility so notice it's got God and Christ God the Father Christ the Son of God They are both part of the divine trinity, both equally God. But there is an order within God himself. Likewise, the man and the woman. Mankind is in the image of God. Man is not in the image of God. Woman is not in the image of God. Man and woman together are in the image of God. But again, there is a responsibility for the man to take responsibility. 
and it is an order that is good for everyone. It's the role of leading by serving, and to break it overturns the good purposes of God. And so Christ leads man and woman. How does he lead man and woman? By dying for the church, for men and women. And so in the family, the husband is to take the lead in serving and the responsibility in growing the family to become more like Jesus. And that needs to be reflected in our church as well, because if it doesn't, it overturns the good order of church. And sadly, I know that not, all, not many of you are married, but I'll, I'll warn you now, I see it regularly in church. What happens when wives take over the role of taking the leadership in the family, the role of leading and weighing and applying the word of God? Husbands retreat from doing it. And I've seen husbands stop striving to grow more like Christ and lead the family. And they leave that God-appointed responsibility to their wives. And in doing that, they sometimes even become bitter about what their wives are doing, even though it's they that have abdicated their responsibility. So there's only a few husbands here, but let me say this to you and those of you that are prospective husbands in the years to come. Stand up and take the responsibility and the leadership in the things of God. You don't have to be perfect to do it. The male ego is so fragile. Don't let your pride that people might see that you are not overly competent get in the way of taking the lead. Keep growing, keep making progress and help your family to do it well. And even if you don't always get it right, God will honour your desire. You see, husbands are the heads of the family, that most important group, and they're encouraged to take the lead, and that's to be modelled in church. And wives and prospective wives, you have that wonderful honour, and I have to admit, very, very difficult task of promoting your husbands so that they might do it even better. I know this challenges us, but this is the word of the Apostle. If you think that Paul commands this because he's a woman hater or he wants to hold women as unimportant. Remember this. It is actually Christian teaching and in fact the teaching of Paul that liberated women. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, all one in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. Because of the way that God has established the church, Women, for the first time, were free to meet with men. That was uncommon in the ancient world. And their prayers and prophecy was welcomed and encouraged. That was unthinkable in their day. And so praise God and thank God for such dignity that he gives to women, and the apostle affirms as well. Even so, though, there is to be order, the same order as is found in the family. Now I know that this command grates in us because we equate having the right to speak, to say whatever we think, it's a measure of how important we are. But it's not that. You, 
whether you're male or female, matter because God gave his son for you, not because you've got the right to speak. And all that we do has to be for the common good. And so there is an order placed here. So just as those who had a word of prophecy or a tongue with interpretation, no matter how important it was, if three people got in ahead of you, you had to be silent. And so it is too with wives here. You're to be silent in the weighing of prophecy for the common good and for good order. Not because you're less, but it's for good order. You see, whether you speak or not is not an indication of how important you are. And as we abide by this command, God will help us to see that our importance is tied up with the fact that Jesus gave his life for us, not by what we do. I know it's difficult. Well, responding to this challenge, what are we going to do with these commands from the Apostle? I've already said that we all come to church with our own prejudice, our own expectations and our own desires. We could ignore what Paul says here because we don't like it. You could spend this sermon texting so you don't have to listen to it. But beware of that. The one who God esteems is the one who is humble and recognises that they need to be changed the one who trembles at the word of God. You could say that chapter 14 is just cultural, so we don't need to pay attention to it in the 21st century and say you can dismiss it. But can you? Paul is our apostle. He was called to take the saving message of Jesus to us and he will not let us go down the path of just saying, oh, it's just cultural, because he would have known how difficult it was to write these words to the Corinthians. So he concludes the chapter with verses 36 to 38. Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it's reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone doesn't recognise this, he isn't recognised. You see, you and I are not to be the determiners of right and wrong and how we function. God is. Certainly our society's expectations about how we should function are not to control what we do. God does. And if you are wise and discerning, able to decide what is right and best, Paul says, recognise that these words penned by him are not cultural, are not to be ignored. They're the commands of God. And so we are challenged, aren't we? Challenged in our desires to speak and speak in a way that is orderly for the benefit of other people, that mirrors our God. So how do we apply some of these ideas more broadly at Wild Street? This is a conversation for you to have over dinner in a little while ordering the way that we function so that as people come in, as verse 25 says, as people come in, they will be delighted to say, God is really amongst you, and fall on their face and surrender their lives to God. So one of the questions is, who should speak in church? We all have our own 
preferences in that. But how do we organise church to show the order that Paul is speaking about here? Is everything that we do in church, everything that we say in church, able to be understood by all? If not, how should we change? We have such a big age range here, from the 80-year-old to the 15-year-old, don't we? That is a very big age range. Some of you can't even spell Spotify and some of you live on it. How then do we speak in a way so that everyone can understand? In some ways that's part of the application of the idea of tongues, isn't it? Because I know that some of you speak a different language to what I do. I've got to keep asking my younger daughter what a whole lot of the acronyms mean, a whole lot of other words that I never grew up with. We need to be doing church in such a way that everyone can be built up. And we need to weigh up what he said. Some of you endure the sermon and then we move on to chit-chat and we hear about what's been happening to each other. I want you to enjoy the chit-chat, but I wonder if it's helpful that we begin by discussing what we have learnt. Maybe we could ask each other, where have you been challenged? What do you think you need to work on in your life? And pray together about that. And finally, recognise that the way that we do things around here will shape every one of us for the rest of our lives in all parts of our lives. The way you and we function has very important consequences. So do you let the word of God dwell in you richly in your conversations? When you're involved in chit-chat and catching up with each other, do you turn that chit-chat into prayer as we hear what is going on with each other? As we do that, we are prophesying. It builds each other up. It builds the church up. And people will say, God is truly amongst you. And there are so many more applications, aren't there? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to hear our prayer. Hear our prayer that the devil won't snatch these words away from us, these precious words that speak about the wonderful privilege we have of prophesying and the wonderful order that you have created. And for both men and women here tonight, for those that long to speak in tongues and those who don't, we ask you that you would be at work to challenge and to change us so that your name and glory and honour would ring out as we obey the commands penned by the Apostle Paul, but coming from you. Amen.